Welcome to Morning Soap. At Fusion Church, our desire is to see everyone attend church and hear from God daily through His Word. The Bible reveals God's responses to various situations, and through daily devotions, we can reshape our thought patterns, transform our minds, and become more Christ-like. Join us here every Monday through Friday as different pastors and leaders from Fusion Church provide insightful devotions and teachings based on the day's scripture. For the current SOAP reading plan, visit fusionchurch.cc soap and join us as we deepen our understanding and relationship with God. Good morning to each of you here on the screen. I'm glad that we can get together today and seek the Lord. I mean, that's the idea of reading the Bible, not just to get some Bible knowledge, but to get to know the person who wrote the Bible. Uh, and I know the Holy Spirit's with us to guide us in this journey through Esther 3. So why don't we do this? Let's take a minute and uh, let's pray. Let's open our hearts to the Lord and to his spirit. Father God, we just want to thank you for the privilege, uh, Lord, of starting the day off with you. I can't think of a better way uh, to get the day going than to look to you, to open your word, and to let you talk to us. So I just pray, Lord, for each of my brothers and sisters on the screen, Lord, that uh, you would just prepare each of our hearts, and I pray that you would highlight uh, to each of us, Lord, that portion of the scripture that you're really trying to drive home to us individually. So, Father, we come with an open and expectant heart uh, to meet you. And it's in your name we ask you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. You can lift your hands and do what you need to do there to wake up. We're good. Okay. Uh, let me just read here Esther chapter three. After these events, King Anasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadalath. Wouldn't that be interesting if you were given that first name? Some of these names in the Bible are interesting. The Agagite and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Adasaurus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Adasaurus, Pur, that is the lot was cast before Haman, from day to day and from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adair. Then Haman said to King Adasaurus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. 
If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. <clears throat> and the king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadada, the Abigite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language being written in the name of King Azasterus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers to the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both the young and the old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Amen. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Before we uh, jump in to Esther 3, let me give a little bit of a background to set the stage. It'll make a lot more sense than just plain going into chapter three cold. So as we, we look at the beginning of Esther, there's a fellow by the name of King Azasterus. Uh, he's the king of Persia, and he's throwing a big banquet and a big party for his leaders. I guess maybe he's trying to just celebrate the victories, to encourage them, whatever. We don't know the reason, but there's a big party, and he invites his wife Vashti to come to that party and banquet. And I'm guessing he's basically just wanting to show her off and say, wow, look at this beautiful lady. She's my queen, whatever. So Vashti gets the word from the king and says, basically, I'm not coming. I'm not coming, king. I am not coming. Well, that's not necessarily a good move for her because she gets demoted. No longer is she going to be the queen. And she's set aside. And from that point, uh, the king goes searching for a brand new wife to fill the slot of Vashti. So word goes out all throughout the kingdom. We got to find a new wife for the king, and she has to be the prize jewel of that whole area. So all over the place, uh, women are being interviewed to be a possible future bride of the king. So that's kind of like where we are. There's a search going on. And now there's a break in the story because as the search is going on, we start to hear a little bit about Esther. Uh, so if you want to look, uh, just turn back from chapter three for a minute. I just want to give you a couple of verses. If you look at Esther chapter two, and if you look at verses five to seven, um, you'll see just a little bit here about uh, Esther and a fellow by the name of Mordecai. So Esther 2.5, it says, Now there was a Jew 
and Susa the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. So we start to hear about Mordecai, and we hear a little bit now uh, about Esther. Verse 7, and he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Go on just a little bit more. Look at verse 10. Um, while she is being interviewed as possibly a candidate to be the king's wife, we're told a piece of information in 2.10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred for Mordecai and instructed her that she should not make them known. So Mordecai basically says, hey, Esther, don't tell anybody your background. Don't tell them you're a Jew because Jews have always seemed to be persecuted. So he's feeling, you know, just keep this a secret. Let's keep it under the covers because if you straight out say that, um, you could be in trouble. I could be in trouble. So let's just keep it under wraps. So uh, as things go forward, if you look at 217, and the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that she was set up as the royal queen at that point. Okay, so there we are. That's kind of like the background stage. Now, when we get into chapter three, uh, we're going to see two main characters. Number one, Mordecai, the Jew. And then we're going to see another fellow by the name of Haman. So you've heard a little bit about Mordecai. Let's, let's look at who is this fellow by the name of Haman. So look at 3.1. After these events, King Azasterus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadada, the Agide, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. So <clears throat> we don't know why necessarily Haman is lifted up, but we're just told the information that for whatever reason, the king makes Haman, in a sense, almost like number two in the kingdom. Uh, and that must have gone I believe to Haman's head, I mean, man, I'm just one of the princes. Now I, I am the man. And Haman is, I believe he just blamed full of himself on the fact that I am in such a high position now. So what's interesting, when we look at that statement here, um, he's an Agite. Now it's interesting if you look at First uh, Samuel chapter 15 and verse 32, we're told uh, that uh, the king of the Amalekites uh, was an Agite. Uh, the Amalekites were the enemies of Israel, and Agite was one of the kings of the Amalekites. So what we're seeing here is the background of Haman could very well, they, they could have had an attitude over all these centuries because the Amalekites were anti-Jews, and this attitude may have been passed down from generation to generation to generation, so that Haman had a built-in aversion 
to anybody that had some kind of a Jewish ancestry. So that's a little bit of the stage uh, about Haman. Uh, but look at uh, Mordecai. This guy is amazing because he's a man of integrity. He's a man of faith. And he's going to stand up for what he believes no matter what. So look at uh, chapter 3. Uh, and if you look at verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down, and they paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. So everybody in the kingdom is bowing down to Haman, who's in a sense number two man. And Haman, I believe, has eaten it up. Like, this is, oh man, I, I, am, I am it. I am the big shot here. There's only one problem. Look at the end of two. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Mordecai said, I, I, there's no way I will not do this. And verse three, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? They want to understand like, well, what? you better do this. Why are you not complying with the orders of the king? Look at verse 4. Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them. Daily, like every day, they're on Mordecai's case, saying, like, why are you not doing what the king orders? It's an order. Why are you not following it out? Uh, and it says he would not listen to them, uh, and that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. Now, in five, jump a chapter further, we know uh, another statement here about Mordecai. This is an attitude that Mordecai stays in and doesn't budge an inch. Uh, in five, nine, it says, then Haman went out that day and glad and pleased of the heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. So why doesn't Mordecai bow? A Jew can only worship the living God, Yahweh, Jehovah. They are never to worship another human being. They're never to bow down to a human being. That would be denying their faith. They only bow down to one person. That's their God. And basically what Mordecai says, come hell or high water, I'm going to do what God says and I honor him, and I worship him only. Sorry, I'm a Jew. I take my faith seriously, and Haman, you got to live with it. Well, uh, I think that's amazing. Such integrity and such a risk of his life for not bowing down. Literally, he could have been killed flat out, but he says, no, I will not budge in my faith. And I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, you know, Mordecai wasn't the only person in the Bible that stood up for what they believed in God. I think of Noah. Think about it. God tells Noah, Noah, I want you to go build an ark because I'm going to wipe out the earth. It's so perverse and twisted and evil. And Noah goes and he builds the ark and it takes years upon years and upon years. But 
I mean, at that point, the people had no clue about rain or water. So Noah would have come off like an absolute fool as somebody that's totally stupid. And we know biblically that people mocked Noah while he was in the process of building the ark. And yet Noah basically said, I'm going to do what I'm told to do, irregardless of people's attitudes. I think of Moses as another man that stood up for what he believed at the risk of his own life. Uh, we're told something interesting here in Hebrews 11. Let me just read it to you. This is Hebrews 11 and verse 24. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, okay? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment. There it is. Because the, the Jews back in those days were being persecuted by the Egyptians, by Pharaoh. But it says here, uh, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So it tells us that Moses said, you know, I'm not going to live in the comfort of Egypt. I mean, he had a plush life. Things were easy. He had pleasures. Uh, it was all good, but he threw it away because he said, no, I'm identifying with the people of Israel no matter what. I think of, uh, as we look in the book of Daniel, we see two instances of people that stand up for what they believe. One of them uh, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that story. Uh, it's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, says to them, you guys are basically to bow before an idol that represents who I am. And basically, all through the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar says, everybody's going to bow to this idol because I say it, and I'm the king, and they had better do it or else. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, this is, and I can just read these so we don't have time to look them up. In uh, Daniel 3.11, uh, the king says this, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, put yourself in their place. How would you like to be thrown in a pit of fire and be burnt to death? That's not a pretty picture, and I think that would put fear in us. Uh, nevertheless, they get an attitude in a positive way. Uh, Daniel 3, 18. Uh, basically, uh, they say, King, we believe that our God's going to deliver us. But I like this, 318. But even if he does not, even if, Nebuchadnezzar, God doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's, that's God's, and that's supernatural boldness. And by the way, God delivers them, as you know the story. They get thrown into the fiery furnace, but God protects them, and they're saved. <clears throat> Another man in the book of Daniel uh, that is a, another stellar example of faith is Daniel himself. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. People just don't like Daniel because he's just so wise. And the king 
definitely has a preference toward him. So some of the people that were in King Nebuchadnezzar's court, uh, and also uh, it says that, well, actually, it's not Nebuchadnezzar. Um, it's Darius, a new king. And basically, uh, here's what they do to set Daniel up, the people that are against him. It says this, uh, Daniel 6, 7. And all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statue and enforce an injunction that anybody who makes a petition to any god or man before you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast in the lion's den. So basically, <clears throat> they're saying everybody is going to do what they're told to do and basically <clears throat> only worship the king. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, here's what happens. Daniel's aware of it, that if he does this, he's in big trouble. And nevertheless, look what he does. Ten. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as had been doing previously. Then these men came, then these men came by agreement, found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. So basically, Daniel says, So what? I don't care what the king says, I don't know what the order is, I will not serve foreign gods, he continues publicly, in a sense, opens the windows. He said, I'm taking a stand. And by the way, because of that, he's thrown in a lion's den. That's quite the deal. Uh, <clears throat> and yet we see God saves Daniel. But I just stand amazed at some of these people, Noah, Moses, Daniel, what gods? What about David, who stood up to Goliath? David's at a, a peep squeak, in a sense. He's a young kid not old, and nevertheless, he comes against this gigantic warrior, the Philistines. Again, he says, who are you to mock the living God? Again, he has the guts and integrity to say, I'm taking a stand for my God. Let me just give you one more here biblically. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Stephen, and Stephen is brought before the Jewish leaders, and he knows he's in trouble. He knows they're out to get him, but good. And basically, he tells it like it is. He gives this long kind of sermon. And then he ends the sermon to these Jewish leaders who he knows are after him. Uh, and he says this. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 51. How would you like this? To say this to the to people that are after you. You men who are stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they began to gnash their teeth. And by the way, Stephen is persecuted. He's literally stoned to death 
because he took a stand for the God that he loved and honored. I believe, I didn't have a chance to look at every detail, that every disciple, Jesus had 12, Judas denies him, you got 11, every other disciple, from what I understand, is martyred for their faith except John, the apostle. It was not an easy ride for the early church. They had to take a stand for what they believed, and many of them paid their very life because of that. And this goes right on down through church history. We know Martin Luther took a stand against the Catholic Church, the indulgences, the, the rituals, everything that took people away from a direct relationship with the Lord. And Luther took a stand, and it cost him dearly. And there's persecution all over the world today. I was at a funeral the other day, and I was talking to a fellow across the way that came from Africa. And right now, over in Nigeria and other places in Africa, there's intense persecution of Christians. And it goes in other areas where there's Muslim influences uh, over in Pakistan, Iran, Iraq. People are having to pay a price to be able to go forward and say, hey, I'm a Christian believer. I believe in our world that people like gray. They like gray. They don't like black or white, like gray. You know, like there's many ways, many ways to get to heaven. They don't like the idea that Jesus flat out says, I am the way. There's not a lot of ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except how? Through me. I believe that we have to be able to take a stand for what we believe. We have to take a stand with our family. And I know there's a we got to find the time to say the right words and pray through how to share the truth with our families because sometimes some of our families don't want to hear it. And I'm not saying we have to bang everybody on the head with the Bible, but somehow God will lead us to take a stand with our family, with our friends, uh, with the people we work with. And sometimes we have to take a stand irregardless whether people like us. And I think we get intimidated. I want everybody to like me. I don't want people not to like me. I don't want people to reject me. And because of that insecurity, we bow and we, we don't stand up for what we believe. And that's not the case. That's not the way it should be. So I have to ask myself the question. I have to ask you the question. Where are we at in this, this taking a stand for the Lord? Are we willing to let our light shine? Are we willing to take a stand when somebody may oppose us? Are we willing to take stands on wholesale abortion or homosexuality or transgender and a lot of things in our culture that are going crazy? Are we willing at times to say this is a black white issue and, and this is it? Uh, you know, basically, I'm taking a stand, and I think that's something I got to look at. You do, because there's times I know in my life that I've chickened out, and, and I look back and say, you know, I should have I been more direct. I should have shared the gospel 
I should have and whatever, but ideally we're growing in that. And I think if we look at the early church in the book of Acts, it says many times they were bold. And you and I need to be bold. And folks, it's not something I think you jack up and look in the mirror and say, I'm going to be bold today. I'm going to be bold. How were they bold? They were bold because the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of them and the Holy Spirit put his own boldness in them to stand steady for their fear, irregardless of the consequences. So we have to ask the question, are we willing, are we willing, basically, to take a stand like Mordecai? It cost maybe his life, but he still stood firm. So that's kind of like the main point I'm trying to get through. <clears throat> but I want to look just a little bit more at this fellow by the name of Haman. Haman uh, and people like him are against the light because it convicts them. Look at look at the anger at Haman. Uh, look at Esther. I got to get back here again. Esther 3. <clears throat> Esther 3, 5 and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Asesterus. So Haman hates the fact that Mordecai won't bow. And he hates it so much that he says, not only am I going to wipe out Mordecai, I want to wipe out the whole race that Mordecai represents. I want to wipe out the Jews. And not only that, uh, look at verse nine. Look at, look at what Haman says to the king. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be agreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 pounds of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. I mean, Haven is such a, I don't know what I want to call him. He's so bad. He even says, I'll pay you, king. I'll put money toward the annihilation of the Jews. He has a distinct hatred for the Jewish people. Distinct hatred. In fact, it says, <clears throat> look at 10. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of uh, Hamadah, the Agbegite. Here he is. He is the enemy of the Jews. And basically, verse 13, the king says, okay, that's what you have want, Haman, you got it. Verse 13, and letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all the Jews, both the young and the old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the month, which is the month of Adair, to seize their possessions as plunder. <clears throat> we'll see as the story goes on at some other soap in the future that it looks bad for the Jews, but God comes through. But I just want you to see Haman hates. He just hates, 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 hates the Jews. The Bible tells us that the Jews are the chosen people of God. The Bible also tells us through the Jews, God's going to send a Messiah to save the world. And <clears throat> you better believe Satan is aware of this. 
And Satan will use anybody he can to try to wipe out the Jews, because if the Jews are wiped out, there's no Messiah. If there's no Messiah, Satan is in good shape. So in the Old Testament, Pharaoh, I believe, was used by Satan to try to wipe out the Jews. It didn't work. In the New Testament, <clears throat> we see Herod, the king, when he hears about another king who's going to be a Jew, uh, Herod does everything he can to wipe out uh, <clears throat> the Jews at that point, and particularly uh, to wipe out Jesus. This is Matthew 2 and 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under. So Herod literally freaks out, tries to wipe out the Messiah. Uh, and it, we just see that there's persecution, even through Jesus' ministry. The leaders of the Jews are against Jesus. They just don't like the light that shines through him. And Jesus is very plain. He says this to the disciples, and I believe he says it to us. Uh, it says this in John 15, 18. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So there is persecution. And we even see it in World War II with Hitler. Again, trying to wipe out the Jews. There is this passion of Satan to knock out the Messiah or the Jewish race because they represent something so special to God. <clears throat> so we need to know two things to sum it up. Number one, uh, that there's always going to be a battle between God and Satan and between good and evil. Uh, and it says this in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-spirited. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to know we're in a war. I'm not talking about a war over uh, in the idea of the Ukraine or over Israel. There is a spiritual war, by the way, and you're in it, and there's an enemy that wants to knock you out, and his name is the devil, and he's roaring like a lion waiting for us to miss something. And it says this in 2 Corinthians 2, 11, let no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul says, you're in a war, and you better know the strategy of the enemy, because if you don't know the strategy of the enemy, he may get you, and it's going to be too late. How does Satan try to trip us up? First, he tries to get us lukewarm. He tries to take away that first love, the first commitment we had when we make a commitment. He, he wants us just to cool off. Just settle down. It's no big deal. You know, just don't get too hyped up. So he tries to get us lukewarm. Satan also tries to get us to be worldly, to suck us into the world ways. And from what we know from statistics, a lot of Christians today are 
no different than the world. We've slipped into the standards and the values of the world. So he tries lukewarmness. He tries worldliness. Satan's really good. He tries to put doubt in our minds. Oh, how can you say God's loving and good? Look at, look at the pain you're going through. Look at the suffering in the world. How are you sure that God is for you and not against you? Satan is also really good at trying to discourage us. I'm sure everybody on this Zoom has somewhere along the way felt discouragement. Like, you know, like I am down in the dumps. And Satan loves to get us discouraged. He loves to get us fixated on the problems. He loves to get us fixated on the pain to knock us out. And if lukewarmness and worldliness and doubt and discourage doesn't get us, then he's going to persecute us and not try to knock us out. So now you're in a battle. And number two, we, like Mordecai, need to take a firm stand and say, this is what I believe. No matter what, I'm not budging like Mordecai. And wrapping up real quick, how do you do that? How do you get that boldness not to cave in? It's by God's grace. We need the grace of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to stand firm and not chicken out. Peter, in the Gospels, said, Lord, I'm never going to deny you. I'm yours. I'm yours. And Peter falls flat on his faith because he was trusting in Peter. We need to trust in the Holy Spirit to give us a divine, supernatural boldness. And how's he going to give us that grace? Number one, I think we need to be students of this book. And you're doing a great thing here in the soap. We need to be students of the Bible. We need to read it. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate upon it uh, and get it from the head into the heart to just chew it up like you would chew up a good meal and, and digest it so that the word becomes deep in our spirits. So not only do we need to read the word and meditate, we need to be people of prayer. We need to be having a time each day, a devotional time where it's just between God and us. And that could be early in the morning. It could be at a lunch break. It could be before you go to bed. The time is not important. It's that we have that set time and then also become people of prayer, not just in the devotions, but our life becomes a prayer. All through the day, we're interacting with the Lord. We're telling him what's on, on our minds. We're listening. Lord, what are you saying to do in these situations? So we, we read the word, we pray, and then we meet together as Christians. It says this in Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, meaning the second coming. <clears throat> so folks, Mike gave the, um, the announcement. Connect groups are kicking in. And if you want to be strong in the faith, get together with a small group. It's a great way to be able to learn the faith. It's a great way to encourage each other by testimonies. Uh, it's a great way to say, hey, I need your help. Would you pray for me in a given situation? So if you're not in a small, you're, you're, you're one of the connect groups right here uh, on the soap. But I encourage you to do that in person. Get together with brothers and sisters in person. Uh, it makes all the difference. So let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for Esther 3. Uh, Father, we just thank you. Uh, Lord, uh, 
that you're, you're, you're teaching us, Lord. We are in a battle. We are in a war. We see the battle uh, in the book of Esther, the battle between Mordecai and Haman. Uh, and we know Satan is doing his best through Haman to knock out Mordecai. And we know we're in that same battle, Lord. And I just pray by your grace uh, that you would allow us to stand strong, Lord. Help us to get close to you, Lord. Help us to stay close by your spirit, Lord, that when we need to take a stand, we, we will have the internal integrity and fortitude to take a stand, even if it may cost our life. Give us, Lord, a, a, we pray, a supernatural boldness so that we don't get intimidated by others, that we don't feel that we have to please everybody or that everybody has to like us. And that even if we're rejected, if we're rejected because of our stand with you, Lord, to know that you were rejected. So if they rejected you, we may be rejected as well as your followers. So, Lord, we thank you. Keep our eyes on you, Lord. We know you're the author and you are the perfecter of our faith. Just touch each one of us, Lord. Let us be a bright light, Lord, in our families. When we go to work, Lord, let us carry your light, your love there into the neighborhood, to the bank tower, Lord, to the grocery attendant. Let our light shine. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day, folks. May you be filled afresh with the Spirit. Amen.